0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Louisa Han, your host for today's episode. We're going to be hearing from Shani Orgad and Rosalind Gill about their new book, Confidence Culture, which is upcoming with Duke University Press. Shani Orgad is a professor of media and communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. She's the author of numerous articles, book chapters, and several books, including Heading Home, Motherhood, Work, and the Failed Promise of Equality, and Confidence Culture. Rosalind Gill is Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis at City University of London. She is author of several books, including Gender in the Media, uh, Mediated Intimacy, co-authored with Meg John Barker and Laura Harvey, and Confidence Culture. She and Roz, welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Before we get into it, um, I'd just like to say that I found this book to be really readable. I kind of raced through the chapters kind of over the festive break, I think, mainly because this injunction to be you know confident is so pervasive um in society, most markedly in kind of corporate feminist cultural products. Um and reading your analyses really sparked a feeling of recognition. and um, it really disentangled and articulated clearly some of the reasons why I personally find the sort of ostensibly Mm -hmm. unquestionable good of encouraging self-confidence in pop culture products and advertising a little bit unsettling or problematic. So I think it will be of interest uh, to a really broad readership, um, as well as scholars and students of cultural studies, gender studies and sociology. So with this in mind, could you give listeners a quick overview
2: of your research backgrounds
0: and how you came to write this book together?
2: Both Ross and I work in the fields of cultural analysis and um, with particular interest in gender. Um, and we kind of work across these fields um, with Ross um, previously working very much on um, issues and areas like um, intimate relationship and body image um, and in relation to genres like advertising and other Um, sites. My own work uh, recently was uh, focused on work and parenting um, and we both uh, previously also worked um, together um, on the field of global development and international development and um, a few years ago we started noticing um, a proliferation of imperatives to women to be confident, to feel comfortable in their own skin, to believe in themselves And it was striking that we were each working in these fields, but we were witnessing very, very similar imperatives, almost almost kind of in some cases uh, identical uh, messages that are framed and uh, put to women in very, very similar way. And um, once we kind of noticed this, we started seeing it everywhere, as is often the case with research. We uh, saw it in the music industry, in um, kind of rise of lots of popular songs that are about self-love with Liso as one example as the self Love Queen, um, and in social media, of course, in the self-help culture, in workplace cultures, in Love Your Body messages, in advertising, um, and even recently in advertising for the UK military, which is an example we include in the book, which kind of promises uh, women who join the military confidence um, that lasts a lifetime. Um, so we began researching this by collecting Literally and physically, um, uh, lots of examples into what we have come to call our confidence basket. Um, that um, not it didn't take very long for this basket to overflow with examples, um, and um, friends and students and colleagues kind of kept adding to it. Um, and what what we were kind of starting to wonder more critically is um, given the kind of striking similarity of these messages and injunctions across these diverse fields um, that were often very much psychologized and individualized, they were about striking a pose, leaning in, believing in yourself, breathing, you know, and it, it seemed almost not to matter whether it was about the body or whether it was about negotiating uh, pay rise or whether it was about going to um, unemployment center and trying to get a job. The kind of um, messages and the injunctions were uh, really um, standardized and similarly um, addressing almost exclusively women in um, highly psychologized ways. So this was the context for uh, us starting to think where does it come from? You know, what are the kind of um, broader cultural and political, and economic transformations and changes that kind of have brought to the rise of this confidence culture? But also, crucially, what work does it do? What psychological work it does, but also what cultural work it does um, across these diverse um context and domains. And this is the background to the chapter and also is mirrored by the way that the cha- that the that the book story is structured because each chapter kind of takes each of these domains but also across the book in terms of the narrative of the book we very much wanted to highlight the striking similarity across these domains and how it coalesces to something that is bigger and is in our Uh, view also very problematic and um, demands critical attention.
0: Mm, Great yeah and we're going to go into some of those domains in a bit. Um, Just before that though um, in the introduction you lay out some of the key terms um, of your argument including what you term the neoliberalizing of subjectivity and this this strikes me as um, one of the most fundamental notions that kind of drives the book. So could you give a brief introduction to your conceptualization of neoliberalism and its, its relationship to kind of popular psychology and self-help discourses?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess most people when they think about neoliberalism, even most academics, they're probably thinking of it as kind of an economic, a political rationality, something that's quite macro, uh, sort of large scale um, trend. It's usually thought about in terms of kind of the small state you know the minute the minimal state maybe the collapse of welfare um the extension of market logics to all areas of life and you know absolutely that's um one way of thinking about it but i guess that that our way into thinking about it is much more about everyday life and um cultural life and, and also subjectivity so Um, our colleague Jo Little has got this wonderful phrase in her in her book against meritocracy where she talks about how neoliberalism has insinuated itself into the nooks and crannies of everyday life and i really love that phrase and and the that sort of sense that it's not just kind of out there but it's here and it's everywhere and it's in all of those cracks and fissures um and so that's very much kind of where we're coming from um and it's highlighting the individualism of neoliberal ideas. But more than that, I think we're really interested in the way that neoliberalism kind of gets inside us and gets into our subjectivities, gets into our very psychic life. And other people have written about this, and I guess notably Nick Nicholas Rose's wonderful body of work and also um, Wendy Brown, um, she talks about neoliberalism's stealth revolution um, and you know we very much build on on those and other authors to think about this but I guess what I see in in Wendy Brown's work in particular is really a sort of stress on kind of neoliberalism as being about rational and calculative logics whereas what we were noticing was that it also seems to operate very much through feelings, emotions, affects, dispositions. Um, It's got that sort of sticky quality um, and that very sort of felt quality. So it's not just about kind of being entrepreneurial and rational and calculating, but it's also about kind of cultivating the right kind of dispositions that you need to survive in neoliberal societies and I guess that we see confidence, resilience, kind of positivity, all of those sorts of um, ideas as examples of that, and very much um, drawn on some wonderful recent work by Kim Allen and Annabelle, where they're talking about the turn to character in neoliberalism, and, and we definitely see confidence and resilience as part of that turn to character. Hmm. So before
0: we delve into the chapters themselves, could you just provide an overview of the key arguments in the book?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So the argument of the book is that um, over the last decade or so, we have witnessed the kind of rise and consolidation of a very seductive and powerful um, culture, as well as cult. We're kind of playing with this um, of confidence that is um, distinctly gendered in that it addresses women. And what fundamentally the confidence culture encourages women to see themselves as held back by kind of a lack of self-confidence. So it assumes women are somehow, uh, by default, have a deficit, uh, a defect um, in that they have a confidence, what's been often called confidence gap. Yeah. Um, and what that this is fundamentally what holds them back, be it in relationships or in the workplace or in their parenting practices, rather than any structural inequalities or barriers or social injustices. And the argument is that um, what the confident culture does, therefore, is that it uh privatizes and individualizes and psychologizes both the problem and the solution. So it turns the gaze and turns the focus onto women and their psyches as the site of the problem. Um, and it turns away therefore from the kind of political and economic and social issues and encourages women to look inwards, turn inwards and fundamentally work on themselves. So the confidence culture a fundamental imperative is to women to work on themselves, to fix themselves through aesthetic labor, through emotional labor, through a series of practices and constant vigilance and scrutiny, um, as kind of a means that will ultimately make them feel better and do better. Um, and all this is at the expense of and by obscuring the kind of social issues. Um, and the possibility of working together and collectively to change structural inequalities. Um, And so self-confidence, what we argue, is frequently mobilized as this explanatory framework. Wherever there's talk of gender uh, inequality or gender injustice, self-confidence is the kind of solution, the kind of one-size-fits-all solution. Um, And... Part of what we're interested in arguing is what this does also to feminism itself, because it reframes social ju- injustices in terms of internal obstacles um, and personal deficits. Um, and then it orients ultimately the kind of um, um, supposedly feminist kind of impetus to change women rather than change the world that women live in, rather than change the structures that have perhaps been the sole or main responsible for why women lack confidence if they do. So in other words, it's kind of um, an unequal society is being systematically reframed by the confidence culture as an individual and psychological problem that requires women to change themselves and requires everybody to change women rather than changing the world.
0: Great. That's really helpful. Thank you. So let's zoom in on chapter one now, which focuses kind of on body confidence in the ways in which advertising exhorts women to kind of embrace their flaws and fight back against sexist aesthetic expectations um what kind of really struck me about this chapter was your discussion of how your your case studies uh, most notably the adverts by Dove and Pantene I think it was that kind of misdiagnose maybe deliberately maybe not the source of women's insecurities and shame as something internal as like a self-castigating voice that kind of prevents them from seeing their own beauty um so could you elaborate on this phenomenon and explain why blaming women in this way fits a kind of neoliberal social regime
1: yeah i mean um we are we are the book with the kind of the chapter on the body, partly because it felt like such a key site of these sorts of discourses. But also we felt that it would really resonate with people and that, you know, anyone approaching the book, they would have seen these adverts. They would be able to connect with it. Um, and I guess what we were arguing was that um, over the last probably 15 years, actually, in the case of these adverts, that there's been a real a, a real sort of shift in tone in advertising. And um, whereas adverts always used to operate by, by kind of capitalising on insecurities, by telling women in particular, you know, what was wrong with them and how they could make themselves better through purchase of a product, what this ad- advertising did was kind of used a much more positive form of address um, and told us that we could be amazing, that we could awaken our incredible, that we could love ourselves, that we could, you know, aspire to and reach this incredible sense of self-esteem um, if we would only, you know, buy the product and thus purchase self-belief and self-confidence. And it is those companies that you've mm-hmm. mentioned: it, it's Dove, it's Pantene, it's L'Oreal, it's Nike. Um, and yeah, they're, they're sort of exhorting us to uh, love our bodies, to believe that confidence is the new sexy, to have kick-ass curves, um, and it seems as if they've kind of appropriated a lot of activist discourses, so from obviously from feminist movement generally, but also from fat acceptance movement, from... Um, anti-racist activism, from queer activism, from disability activism. It's kind of taken those discourses and kind of, I guess, in the familiar cultural studies way, kind of emptied them out of their their kind of political force, um, neutered them in some way, incorporated them and made them a little bit safer. Um, and, and they centre around pride and empowerment and um, telling us that, you know, we can fuck perfection, that we can reject body shaming. But what we show is that um, there are multiple problems with this because, first of all, many of the companies that are exhorting us to do these things are some of the worst offenders. They're the they're the diet companies, they're, they're the weight watchers, they're the companies that are selling us kind of cosmetics and that are premised on the idea that there is something wrong with women as they are um, they also overstate the diversity that they purport to show um, they have well documented egregious you know let's say mistakes that's a kind of nice way of putting it um where they've um you know been some of the worst offenders um but more than this they're, they're really um switching something around so that confidence becomes kind of another stick to beat women with. It becomes another way that women can fail. And they, you know, one of the examples that we talk about is um, the patch advert by, by Dove, which is an advert which has a sort of pseudo experiment where women are invited to put this patch on that's rather like a nicotine patch or a hormone patch. And Um, see if it has any effect on their self-esteem or their self-confidence and these sort of unsuspecting women go to this lab put the patch on and then we see the video diaries and it seems to um, kind of really embody the, the the whole sort of sense of what these adverts do when it's revealed that the women do indeed feel better after wearing the patch but that the patch actually contained nothing. So that this feeling bad was all in women's heads. It was this imagined thing. So women are once again blamed for being insecure. And the response is to just um, invest in self-belief. Uh, so it seems as if there are multiple kind of levels of, of, of critique. Um, another one that we have of the adverts is is around their kind of post-racial tenor and the way that they kind of hollow out differences and they they take differences in um, disability, in race, in, um, in gender, in religion, and they kind of um, make them all exist on one plane and um, really kind of hollow them out of any significance. So, yeah, we're, we're very, very critical, um, but I think particularly of the way that they trivialise what feels like really intensifying beauty pressures that women are under and intensifying surveillance of women's bodies um, and treat it as if it's something very trivial and a self-inflicted wound.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I had to look up the uh, the patch advert actually because I was quite shocked that it sort of existed from your description. Um, but yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go and have a look on YouTube or something. Um, so in the next chapter, um, you discuss confidence in the workplace and like the cultivation of a self sufficient and motivated neoliberal self as a means for um, career progression. Um, I think this is this is just pronounced in, say, academia as it is in other <laughs> seemingly corporate sectors um, for all that we talk about, you know, toxic productivity culture. Um, so with this in mind, could you kind of briefly touch on how confidence culture obscures workplace inequities and how um, the, ac- the um, pandemic has affected this phenomenon particularly?
2: Yeah, and... Again, I think what was striking very much when we were working on the book is how similar so much of what Roses has described in relation to the body positivity and body image kind of domain um, in the way it manifests in discussions about work and workplace. Um, and what we particularly show in this chapter is how, on the one hand, the turn to confidence was instrumental in putting gender equality on the agenda. So as we know, and you mentioned Louisa, also in our own universities, you know, we are being called to join confidence workshops, yeah, um, and similar kind of initiatives. And so, um, and it is part of the broader focus and emphasis on gender equality in the workplace and the visibility that issues like the gender pay gap, um, like sexism in the workplace has received uh, with, The kind of rise of popular feminism, very much kind of influenced by Me Too and other uh, movements as well. But at the same time, what the confidence culture does in the context of the workplace is that it calls women as workers to turn inward and again to tackle their supposedly inner obstacles. And in so doing, it again turns away from critiques of work cultures and from the broad critique of the broader kind of structures that produce women's self-doubt in the first place. So I think it's important for us to say perhaps that we don't necessarily doubt that many women indeed perhaps experience self-doubt or, um, and there's lots of research that goes to show that women are less quote unquote pushy when it comes to um, asking for a pay rise or for negotiating and, and kind of advancing their needs in the workplace. But the problem is that there isn't a proper diagnosis and acknowledgement of where does this come from, but also that the solution that is uh, offered time and time again is for women again to kind of work on themselves. And in the chapter, we look at uh, some of the kind of um, bestseller advice slash self help um books that have topped amazon and other kind of booksellers uh, over the last few years including of course Cheryl Sandberg's so-called feminist manifesto lean in um, that is really exemplifies a lot of what we are critiquing in her call to internalize the revolution that's precisely where the problem lies in that it's um while sandberg and others perhaps nod at some um Structural issues like childcare costs or pay gap. Ultimately, the message is about, in Sandberg's word, internalizing the revolution, um, working on oneself, you know, claiming a, a place, a seat at the table, and so on. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, Louise, um, we were kind of wrapping up the project um, as the pandemic kind of started. Um, and it was really notable and quite um, disturbing to see how these exhortations to women to boost their confidence at work became really popular in the wake of COVID-19 in a really surprising way where women's economic security and mental health was really hit disproportionately. Um, women were um, exhorted within workplaces, but also across in popular media in magazines, to do deep belly breathing, you know, to listen to meditation and hypnosis, to um, um, work on being self-compassionate, to show resilience, all these kind of formulaic DIY um, um, kind of injunctions were circulated almost kind of with a vengeance. And um, the focus was really strikingly almost exclusively on harnessing individual resources to overcome the immense stress and insecurity and uncertainty and pain and inequality and injustice that the pandemic has exacerbated and brought about. Um, And there was very, very little acknowledgement, if any, in discussions about women in the workplace, again, about workplace uh, and employers' responsibility, government's responsibility to support women and any language that is about collective action. It was all, again, very much uh, in really problematic ways, focusing on this kind of quote-unquote crisis that is peculiar to women, yeah, this kind of product of self-doubt, of perfectionism that's holding women now in um, in the context of the pandemic. And uh, one of the booming industries very uh, interestingly during the pandemic was the coaching, uh, confidence coaching and coaching more generally, which uh, really increased in terms of uh, people's um, interest and and searches. And again, while we want to maintain uh, an ambivalence and we emphasize it throughout the book and we don't want to dismiss the perhaps the value and benefit that, for instance, confidence coaching might have for individual women, we are struck and really uh, disturbed and concerned by the ways in which it systematically turns inward and emphasises that it is the problem lies in women as women, uh, in the workplace, the solution lies in women uh, in the workplace, um, and the structures, the broader structures are kind of uh, left um, off the hook. Mm, yeah,
0: I think, yeah, the ambivalence certainly comes through, but you're right, there's definitely like this disturbing kind of undertone that re- is really explored very well. So in the next part of the book, you move on to examine the sort of the world of self-help literature, Um, That employs confidence culture in quite complex ways. Um, So a good example of one of these titles is um, something uh, listeners might have heard of, which is um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which ostensibly calls for rejecting the status quo and not doing things purely due to societal expectations. Um, So, you know, no keeping your man happy or whatever. Um, But as you explain, this apparent dissidence doesn't necessarily stray from neoliberal ideologies at all. Um, So could you expand on this a little and explain how self-help culture may have changed over the past few years?
1: Yeah, we found it so interesting, actually. One of the things that was really interesting in doing research for the book was finding this this kind of new subgenre of of anti-self-help self-help and it's kind of got two strands to it, I think. I think there there is the kind of um, how not to give a fuck, kind of very defiant kind of strand. And then there's another strand that's very much more around kind of anti-perfection and vulnerability. Um, and I think both those things are kind of operating in parallel and sometimes um, coming together and being quite entangled. But yeah, as we were researching, we were finding books like How to Hold a Grudge or It's Great to Suck at Something, Unfuck Yourself, Fuck Anxiety, The Antidote, all of these books that kind of position themselves as kind of breaking with an orthodoxy and being very resistant. And I think for us as, as cultural analysts, those sorts of things are always absolutely intriguing you know when you see when you see an area like as we saw with with branding and advertising when you see an area that's kind of positioning itself as something different something resistant it's usually really really interesting to explore and so it was with the with the self-help because um, it kind of positioned itself as kind of refreshingly cutting through the usual sort of Disciplinary self care messages. Um, and there are some wonderfully interesting examples. One of them, because we talk a lot about gratitude journals and, and gratitude as a kind of strategy throughout the book, one of the ones that um, really jump, jumped out was a, a book called Wreck This Journal, which is an anti journaling book in that anti-self-help genre which actively encouraged people to break the spine to tear pages out to kind of ball up the paper and throw it from a tall building to pour coffee on it and it really sort of had this kind of no we're going to do something different um we're breaking the mold um but as we argue in the book so much of the promise of this sort of different kind of self-help seemed to actually just get recuperated back to something very, very similar to what had gone before. So um, even if you had a book that was about how to fail, um, the messages really underlying it were around um, being vulnerable, believing in yourself, not looking to others to validate you, but effectively kind of producing those internal psychic resources Yourself, So it it seemed to be kind of um, wrapped in a new kind of dissident and subversive language, but actually inculcating a lot of the same ideas. Um, And I think it's worth maybe saying something specifically about vulnerability here, because um, when we were researching the book, we noticed, uh, in fact, it was brought to our attention that there was much more of a kind of turn towards vulnerability going on in culture and we actually thought i wonder if you know if there is some sort of sense of confidence culture shifting and maybe vulnerability is being given more space and rather than women having to be these kind of strong assertive confident bold um, types that there's more of a space for feelings of fragility and insecurity but um, we noticed several things about this. And one was that, um, first of all, it seemed to be, vulnerability seemed to be a kind of site of privilege and only some people were allowed to be vulnerable. And there were many, many examples of kind of very senior figures um, in, in public life who would be often confessing their their sense of imposter syndrome you know michelle obama melinda gates many many senior figures um who would would kind of be able to talk about their vulnerability but it seemed as if that was not something that would be open to everybody and um, it would be very very different if you were um poor not a celebrity um Oppressed in other multiple ways for you to actually occupy that space of vulnerability. Yeah, and the other the other thing about the vulnerability um, that struck us was that it was allowed to be acknowledged only to the extent that it was safely in the past and that the person experiencing it had actually moved on and occupied the a sense of confidence. So I think we decided to look at it specifically because partly because we're sort of trained as social scientists and we wanted to be rigorous. We didn't want to just kind of look for examples that confirmed our hypothesis. So we actually wanted to actively engage with counter trends. Um, But we concluded in this case that the vulnerability trend was actually intimately related to confidence rather than um, a real moving on from it.
0: Mm. So... Chapter four kind of moves on to focus on confident mothering and the pressures of kind of put on mothers to raise confident children, particularly girls, um, almost as maybe a feminist duty. Um, And I found like the latter part of the chapter really interesting where you talk about the racialized dimensions of this. Um, So would it be possible to briefly discuss how these post-racial elements that you've already briefly touched upon um, of confidence culture affect black women in particular, black mothers, um, and overlook, again, structural inequalities?
2: Yes, I think, you know, just to contextualise the chapter, um, so the chapter really builds on these previous arguments that we look at in other domains to consider how uh, confidence operates in the domain of parenting, and particularly, again, its gendered character and the way that it inculcates mothers. And girls as as the kind of ideal subjects of the crisis um, and the consequent kind of desirable transformation from lacking confidence to kind of confident mothers and daughters. Um, And what what was very uh, um, striking is in similar ways that we've acknowledged in other um, domains is how indeed um, there is very little recognition of the specific conditions and the very uh, profoundly unequal conditions um, that the experience of parenting and mothering in particular um, is occurring, so issues like sexism and racism in particular. And, at, the t- and at a time that ha- there has been growing visibility to what has been called, I think particularly in the US context, but not only mothering while black and um, kind of increasing visibility to um, voices and accounts of ordinary black women um, who are uh, mothering, either biological mothers, but also destabilized kind of notions of other types of mothering. Um, At the same time that this kind of has grown, um, we see the kind of confidence culture circulating very familiar mantras to the kind of ideal type mother who's often, even if implicitly, cast as the white middle class uh, mother. So an example would be, you know, we looked at um, mother's blogs that are often don't necessarily address a particular segment of mothers. They have this kind of universalist kind of um, imperatives to mothers. And again, um, through very, very familiar and similar um, um, calls to uh, be authentic, to to embrace your imperfection, to be the perfectly imperfect mother. And yet, for instance, the imagery that often would kind of accompany these texts on these websites would be of... Uh, um, kind of signified as a white middle class uh, mother um, who's kind of privileged in the way that she's dressed in the setting and so on. Um, and I think you know one of the tensions we acknowledge is how increasingly both celebrity black mothers um, like Cardi B, like Serena Williams, like Beyoncé, um, introduce and offer perhaps um, a, a departure or a different kind of, um, kind of representation of mothering, um, but also increasingly memoirs and more kind of ordinary voices of black women, um, particularly in the wake of the kind of uh, uh, disavowal, state disavowals of the black death in the US and what Jennifer Nash kind of describes very um, eloquently as mothering as a kind of a site of crisis and the way it's kind of uh, prevailed in uh, U.S. media and U.S. public uh, discourse. Um, And so these kind of contemporary maternal accounts, we argue, kind of poke a hole in this edifice of confident mothering, yeah, and its post-racial character. Um, But at the same time, um, so much of what circulates again around uh, confidence mothering is highly individualized is not recognizing um, the really problematic impact of racism and um, sexism and other kind of um, um, forces that condition um, the experience of mothering. Um, One of the kind of uh, many examples that we look uh, at in the chapter is... um, the book that was a follow-up, a kind of a sequel book to The Confidence Code, which we discuss in relation to the workplace. And this was a confidence code for girls um, and is addressed, again, particularly to mothers as somehow the kind of almost sole responsible to uh, not only be confident themselves, but to model confidence to their own daughters. Um, And this is very much... uh, Covering up again and obscuring and masking the vast um, inequalities and the vast diverse conditions that mothers across race, class, um, disability, you know, um, sexuality, and other um, um, kind of dimensions um, experience and are able even to kind of demonstrate and 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 model. Confidence And linking to what Rose said before about vulnerability, part of the confident mothering kind of imperative is also not just to model confidence, but to model vulnerability, but in small doses, you know, in a very particular way and always as a supposed lesson to your daughter here I am, I'm vulnerable now, you know, I'm kind of role modeling, modeling failure and struggle so you can learn from it. Um, but it's, it's, and this is something that is discussed in um, by Shipman and Kane, a confidence code for girls. Uh, but again, the onus of role modeling confidence is exclusively the mothers, but it, and it takes no account nor of, the role of potential male partners in the picture, you know, so the fathers are completely absent from this responsibility, but also it doesn't take account of the very, very, you know, the con- who it's a very exclusive, um, um, site and, and, and privilege to be able to kind of role model this struggle and failure and to be able to, um, also show how you overcome it and so on. Um, And this is, again, in in significant tension with the kind of parallel um, trend that I was describing of of, uh, mothering uh, while black and of of perhaps the expansion of meanings and portraits of mothers that are far less perfect and um, kind of, you know, um, smooth and um, unproblematic. Okay, so...
0: Just to move on to your final chapter now, um, which kind of makes a slight departure and moves the focus towards Global South and how the confidence culture kind of spawned in the Global North trickles into humanitarian and development programs. Um, So could you briefly expand on this for the audience and explain how some ostensibly empowering programs may have somewhat darker implications?
1: Right. So, chapter five of the book looks at um, confidence culture in the global south, but also in in the relationship between the global north and the global south. And we were very aware that most of the book is focused on a kind of Anglo context, mainly kind of um, the US, the UK, um, and you know Australia, North America generally. Um, and we wanted to. Um, interrogate the extent to which the confidence culture is. Is it exclusively a kind of global northern phenomenon or does it actually spread more widely? And um, one site that we wanted to look at, which seemed like a very rich seam for investigating this, is the whole kind of sphere of what's now called post-humanitarianism. Um, so it's development initiatives, it's charitable giving, and it's a, it's a kind of whole sphere which increasingly for subjects in the global north is sold to young women in particular as an opportunity for improving themselves or in empowering themselves, developing their CVs, um, buying products, whilst at the same time in a way that we felt was kind of redolent of the kind of white saviour co- complex, somehow supporting and empowering their, their global sisters, their sisters in the global south. Um, and so we've, we've looked at that. Um, it came out of previous work that we've done together, which included looking at things like the girl effect and girl up. Um, and we've looked critically at that. Maybe, Shani, you want to say... A little bit more, perhaps, about you know the volunteering and so on,
2: yeah. And I, I think you know, we also looked very much
1: um, in parallel to um, the work that
2: NGOs and brands are um, kind of uh, implicated and involved in this, also at the kind of industry or the, of the volunteer tourism, what's often been referred to quite cynically as volunteerism, um, and which is, again, very interestingly distinctly gendered. More than 70% of volunteer tourists are women, um, and particularly white uh, female participants have been the kind of most visible subjects in this industry. Um, And again, here, what struck us, um, we kind of reviewed numerous websites of those, those kind of volunteerism, is how they... Um, market this kind of promise for women and young girls, young women and girls in the global north to have an adventurous kind of experience. You know, the imagery is often of women hiking, women doing all those things. And the text that supports these websites is all about how you can hone your skills, um, how it will be also a process of self-discovery and self-transformation, while at the same time you will help your quote-unquote kind of you know sister in the global south so this kind of double address um where confidence is the, you know, in Foucauldian sense, is a technology that is um, promised to kind of bring also and bridge and and create this connection between the global, the the girl or the woman in the global north and the global south, and we show a very similar process occurring through commodities, through um, calls for women in the global north to purchase certain products that promise both to empower them, to help them kind of boost their own confidence, as well as uh, invest in uh, um, their sisters uh, in the Global South. And finally, part of this kind of, uh, the chapter looks at also um, more deliberate, if you wish, exports of confidence to the Global South, where particularly transnational corporations and brands of the kind that we looked at in the first chapter are entering the global south in this space and replicating very similar messages and mantras only addressed to the global south. We look at the example of always the kind of the whole femcare industry um, and always launch of its hashtag we are the generation of first campaign in Saudi Arabia. Um, And it's quite striking if you look at, again, you can search it on YouTube if you look at the always um, advert, it's so similar to the Dove, to the L'Oreal, you know, in that it we see kind of a range of, I think, four or five Saudi women, a Saudi woman chef, a Saudi woman gym owner, you know, and they really um, uh, kind of embody the ideal type confident woman. They strike the pose that uh, the confident woman is supposed to strike. They confess their vulnerabilities in this short commercial. So they talk about how they had self-doubts, but how they overcome these self-doubts. And that's what enabled them to make it and be the generation of firsts. And it's all kind of, again, very much the tone is defiant, there's a feel good and revolutionary uh, kind of feel to it. Um, But again, these kind of, in this context, Saudi women are called to esteem themselves and to maintain their personhood. Explicitly through consuming always, yeah, <laughs> through the consumption of always femme care products um, and through more broadly embracing this kind of neoliberal feminist confidence culture disregarding the very uh, um, uh, oppressive structural inequalities that they're subjected to in very similar ways, again, that commercials in the global north are doing in obscuring um, the structural conditions and the gender uh, inequality that women are facing folk reframing it as a personal psychological and individual individualized problem and solution mm.
0: so following this chapter your your analysis of confidence culture ultimately leads to this kind of uh, to a conclusion regarding kind of the pushback against the neoliberalization of subjectivity too so could you elaborate on some of the implications of your book and just pick out a few of the ways in which kind of the cultural products you mentioned at the end is like uh, sex education. The Netflix series is one of the ones I could think of that kind of subvert or diverge from confidence culture um, and how like newer generations of women might benefit from different portrayals of success or simply existing, etc.?
1: Um well, I guess what we try and do in the conclusion of the book is like draw together the threads of the argument, obviously and and set out, yeah, what we've what we've put forward. But we also try and ask the question of um, what's beyond confidence, you know what what could there be? and um, how could these things be reformulated? and uh, are there any kind of cultural products in the spheres that we've looked at, whether it's, intimate relationships or the body or motherhood or work or um, development in the Global South. And we look at, you know, what's what's pushing beyond confidence. And, um, yeah, you mentioned sex education, and we picked that out quite briefly, really, but just as, uh, as an example of a TV series that is it refuses the kind of confidence discourse, the discourse that we've um, identified in looking at sort of sex and relationship self-help, which is all about um, either kind of pleasing your partner or about kind of pleasing yourself and coming into yourself and more fully and becoming a kind of confident sexual subject. And it, it was very striking to us that the TV show Sex Education didn't go there um, it actually tried to kind of open up the language around diverse sexual orientations diverse gender identities um, diverse ways of being and feeling sexual but it never made recourse as far as we could see to that old individualized self confident self-confidence so it, it just felt like a small one, small example of kind of going beyond or of reimagining sex and relationships outside of that individualizing discourse.
2: Yeah, and I think what also deliberately in this chapter, the kind of examples we we, we decided to structure it as a kind of a vignette of examples that are all still within popular media and popular culture, because it's possibly you know arguably easier to find examples of collective feminist mobilizations outside the kind of realm of popular media, which we, of course, um, very much kind of um, acknowledge and appreciate, and uh, lots has been written on. But we wanted also to think, okay, within the the limits of this sphere, uh, can we find, uh, if not complete divergences, at least examples where the kind of boundaries are pushed? And uh, one of them was sex education. We spent some time also on LISO, um, partly because it's, it's almost impossible, perhaps impossible to write about confidence without Lizzo. She's been dubbed the kind of queen of self-love and self-confidence through her lyrics and her appearance and her performances um and in many ways and we write about it, she is indeed the embodiment of what we write about and what we critique but she's also a very interesting figure in that she embodies and epitomizes the confidence culture but also in some ways pushes its boundaries she kind of diverges from this hollow diversity that we criticize um in that she celebrates uh Quite a radical, actually, variation from the normative ideal of female attractiveness, and we just recently uh, saw the new Nike uh, campaign of uh, which, which kind of seems to pick up on this. So perhaps there are some signs of change. Again, not without the problems, but at least kind of some somehow beyond the kind of quite restrictive normative beauty standards that dominate the confidence culture. Um, and Lisa also. Ex- really importantly in all of her interviews, in her lyrics, in her performance, very much uh, uh, highlights how her experience and her mantra of self-confidence is inseparable from her experience of racism and fat shaming and sexism. Again, things that we were um, we, we, we found were largely missing from the kind of more mainstream confidence culture. Um, and she disrupts the kind of, investment in what um, um, has been called in uh, um, the kind of respectable, the black respectable body, um, in centering her plus size and in uh, as a political size of resistance. And we show some examples, uh, including the kind of um, um, presidential elections and how she mobilizes this. Um, so, I, and I think finally, um, our critique of self-confidence is also about the ways in which, the confidence culture really uh, disavows and even kind of um, um, renders any sense of dependence and interdependence as abhorrent and as repulsive. Um, And so the examples we look at also are examples that even if not in extreme sense, in some ways acknowledge, if not celebrate, dependence Collectivity, vulnerability, but again, not just as an individual, as individualized experience, but as something that is about, you know, leaning, not leaning in, but leaning on each other and um, a kind of not just allowing, but also legitimizing and, and accepting Um, the fact that we depend on each other and that dependence shouldn't be kind of um, cast as something that is abhorrent or is repulsive or is um, illegitimate, quite the contrary, especially in COVID times more than ever.
0: Yeah, Um, I think this is like quite a good note to wrap up on now, actually. (laughs) Um, So just to ask the final question that we ask ev- all of our guests: um, What are you both working on now?
1: Uh, well, we are both working on a new book together, um, which we're planning to call "Psyched: um, Living in the Self-Care Society," and it pushes some of the arguments that we've made in this book, but really tries to look at um, how there's been a shift from just self-help to a more kind of totalizing idea of self-care and. And to kind of explore some of the keywords of that, so you know, happiness, wellness, um, self care itself, as well as confidence and resilience and positivity. Great. Um, so,
0: thank you so much for joining me, um, and good luck. Good luck with those endeavours. They sound really interesting.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.
2: Lovely meeting you, and good luck with your post uh, postdoc life.